Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England and a special coronation surprise for you. It's got nothing to do with crowning actually, but it is on Eleanor of Aquitaine and the birth of the Angevin Empire. So look, I'm aiming at three episodes a month at the moment, so this, being an off week, is a special gift from me to thee. It's a story from the life of Eleanor of Aquitaine and is supposed to amuse and delight you, but also to get you to cough up and become a member of the History of England to both support your honest and hard-working podcaster and put food on the table. If you do decide that would be a good idea, which it may not for you, I appreciate, so no pressure, you can go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and sign up using credit card, PayPal, or indeed join Patreon. And once done, you open the sesame bun to reveal a cave with over 100 hours of shedcasts and up to 90 minutes fresh every month. Cheap as chips. Why, Eleanor, I hear you ask, intrigued. Well, once upon a time, I asked the good burgers of the History of England Facebook site which medieval characters folks would like to hear podcasts about if they were members. There were two names at the top of the list, and they were so far at the top of the list as to be like the top of Everest from the bottom of the Mariana Trench. They were Eleanor of Aquitaine and William the Marshal. And so I started doing extended biographies, including Eleanor of Aquitaine. If and when you sign up, amongst a cornied blessed copia of podcasting goodies, you will find series about four people so far. Eleanor of Aquitaine, William the Marshal, I insist provocatively, or including the, incidentally, just like Thomas A. Beckett, Margaret Beaufort and John Hawkwood. 
And you can listen to those biographies in two formats, in 20 to 25 shortish 15-minute episodes or six or seven hour-long ones. It's up to you. Still why, Anna, I hear you say. Well, she is one of those figures that have always fascinated people during her life and ever since, enduring to this day. There are many reasons for that. There is through her a connection to an ancient, romantic and half-legendary world of southern medieval France of the 12th century, of a glittering, cultured and exotic court filled with troubadours and courtly love, romantic medieval castles, lords and ladies and all that jazz. Eleanor's father, famously, was also a poet, writing in the now-lost Occitanian language, the Languedoc, from which the Languedoc region draws its name, Oc, being the way that Southerners reputedly said the word for yes, as opposed to Paris and the North, where they spoke the Languedoc, or Languedoc, as it will become known. In fact, Tennyson, Alfred Lord Tennyson, that poet chap, really went to town on this angle. He even had Eleanor herself as a troubadour in the land of Poitou, whose voice was then silenced in the cold lands of the north. So there's that. And then there are the scandalous stories that titillated and outraged the monkish chroniclers like William of Malmesbury as they sat in their draughty monasteries and robes with their bare bottoms on cold stone seats and scratched furiously at their hair shirts. She was rumoured to have had affairs with multiple people, including her uncle at Antioch, got herself into an incestuous marriage, slightly technically incestuous, but you know, and just generally not behaved according to the model of the ideal medieval woman. There was supposedly a tempestuous war with her husband over his mistress, the fair Rosamond. That one's kept going, actually. Wasn't there a recent teleseries where she drowns the lass in a water butt? Can't be sure about that. But murder was indeed among the accusations thrown at her at one point in time. She was even supposed to have had an affair with Saladin, which really would have been an outrage given that Saladin would have been ten at the time. Not to be outdone, one chronicler goes for a spot of Satanism. He tells a story of Eleanor disrobing in front of her nobility and declaring to them, I am not the devil that the King of France called me just now. He said a more than slightly kinky feel to it what was probably more Eleanor taking off her robe to show that her body under her gown had none of the devil's deformities or devil's marks. Actually, this one probably comes from a story her son Richard the Lionheart rather liked, the tale of the Countess of Anjou, who aroused suspicions by avoiding the mass and eventually flew out of the church window when rumbled. Richard rather proudly declared that his family had all come of the devil and to the devil they would go. I'd at least certainly have put all the Angevin children on the naughty step or possibly slapped an asbo on the lot of them. But... Once he'd done all that scandalous, titillating stuff, there was also her power, her influence, her magnificence. One of those monks writing in Winchester in the 12th century, a man called Richard of Devizes, whose ears were absolutely identical in their sizes, described her as a woman without compare. She was cultured, rich, powerful, ruler of massive lands wider and richer than the King of France, and she broke the rules or she stretched them. Maybe this is the one that has been brought more to light now. She was at two or three points a ruler in her own right in Poitou, and under Richard she held considerable power and influence throughout the Angevin lands, playing a crucial role in things like foiling John's rebellion against her favourite son, Richard the Lionheart. 
These days, in the fun-tucking tradition of proper academic history, a load of these myths and legends have, of course, been dispelled. Eleanor was in most ways a very conventional medieval great lady, actually. She was no social rebel. And in the stories of women like Margaret Paston, the central management role of women on estates is also very much a normal feature of medieval life. But Eleanor acted on the grandest of stages. And what remains is still exceptional. She was forceful, political, determined to control the direction of her life, decisive in a way that makes her stand out in the Middle Ages. I bet you are now sorry you asked, and are now thinking, get on with it, man. Sorry. So, the story I'm going to tell you, sort of lifted from the Shedcast's extended biography, is about how Eleanor helped create one of the greatest dynastic empires in Europe, the Angevin Empire. OK, a bit of background first. And apologies to all of you who know all of this. I just need to make sure we all have the same hymn sheet in our hands and are singing exactly the same psalm or whatever it is you might be singing. Do they hand out song sheets at death metal gigs? Haven't been for a while. So, Eleanor was never meant to go to sea. She was never meant to be ruler of Languedoc, that is to say. She was probably born in 1124-ish. No one's quite sure, because everyone expected her dad would have more children, sons, hopefully, and therefore no one took much notice of little Eleanor, who would presumably be married off to some nice count somewhere to cement some temporary and ephemeral alliance. She was born into the grandest dynasty in France of the 12th century, a France still very much in the wash of the disintegration of Charlemagne's 9th century empire. Under the assault of the Vikings, Francia had shattered and central authority almost completely dissolved. The kings of France held only the tiny Ile de France around Paris as their domain, but crucially also held the nominal legal overlordship of all the regions of France deriving from Charlemagne's heirs. Now, even in the 12th century, the counts of the various regions of France laughed <laughs> contemptuously at such claims and kicked sand in the royal face with pretty much impunity. But actually, this nominal right was a diamond-strong golden thread. Because they were needed, needed to deliver justice and arbitrate on arguments between those counts, the Capetian kings of France would hold on to this golden thread until their hands bled with the ferocity of their grip. And one day that golden thread would lead to Louis XIV, the arbiter of Europe from the magnificence of Versailles. That's quite a story, but we're not going to do that. Otherwise, we'd be here all day and your brains would dribble from your ears. Anyway, nominal overlord or no nominal overlord. And while the Counts of Blois, for example, might accept this as true in theory, the Dukes of Aquitaine did no such thing. Nope. They claimed their authority to be descended directly from the Roman Empire, not the nouveau holy version, the real McCoy one. They claimed their lands by inalienable allodial right. Now that would lead to a Barney or two, but Aquitaine constituted one quarter of modern France and made the Ile de France look like a rabbit hutch, so jog on. And the Dukes, almost always called William by the way, were a cussed, in-your-face, high-living bunch, not your stay-at-home types at all. Unless that was to stay at home and have a party. Eleanor's grandfather was Duke William IX, a warrior, poet and troubadour, described by one of those monks as one of the most courtly men in the world and one of the greatest deceivers of women. 
He was a fine knight-at-arms, liberal in his womanizing, and a fine composer and singer of songs. He travelled much through the world, seducing women. Bit of a theme coming out there. Well, Eleanor's dad was, in fact, a bit less poetic than William IX, and in 1137 he set off on pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, as you do. He made some preparations, should he not return, realising that his 13-year-old daughter and only heir would be mighty vulnerable to her rapacious Aquitanian vassals. He also wrote to the King of France, Louis VI. Louis was known as Louis the Fat, on account of being fat. So William made Eleanor's Louis' ward, which was clever. So Louis became a policeman, basically, to look after her from all those Aquitanian counts. Though it was unlikely there was much fear among the southern nobles, to be honest, the Ile de France, as I've said, was like Camelot, a silly place, a little place. Anyway, would you believe it? William then went and died when he was on pilgrimage. Louis the Fat could not have been more delighted. I mean, presumably he was also sorry for the untimely death of a valued colleague and all the rest of it. But, yep, mainly delighted. Because it meant he got to decide who would marry the heiress to a quarter of France. What a poser. Imagine the agony of the indecision. Choices, choices. There's the Count of Anjou, Geoffrey Lebel, Geoffrey the Beautiful. She'd like that, probably. Or Thibault de Blois. He eats nicely with his mouth shut. Or, hey, what a thought. What about, how about she marries my very own son, Louis, so that the King of France acquires vast lands, wealth and power and can subject all the counts of France to his rule and could build Versailles 400 years early and dominate Europe before John Churchill can ruin it all. Oh, go on, twist my arm. And so it was that Louis heir, also a Louis, by the way, and Eleanor were married in the cathedral in Bordeaux. Before the year was out, Louis the Fat was dead, and the King of France was Eleanor's hubby, Louis VII, and Eleanor, Queen. Now, slowly, Eleanor would come to understand that while on paper it looked as though she'd lucked out and landed the most prestigious job available on the Queen market, in practice, Louis was not the kind of man she was going to admire, nor the kind of man to become her soulmate. Louis won the admiration of the monks, for sure. Bit of a bad sign, really. He was terribly, terribly pious, never happier than when on his knees. But a bit indecisive, bit of a ditherer. I am sure proper historians will be tearing out their hair with rage at this horrendous simplification, but we don't have time for all that nuance and subtlety. So I'll give you a couple of contemporary quotes. One says that Louis' entire life is a model of virtue, for when a mere boy he began to reign, worldly glory did not cause him sensual delight. Well, these days, of course, we realise that the pursuit of glory is deeply wrong and results in misery and death. But in 1137, the pursuit of glory rocked. And anyway, it was only the peasants who actually died. But then another commentator remarked that he was rather more credulous than befits a king and prone to listen to advice that was unworthy of him. Welcome to Alan, by the way, who's agreed to make sure you don't have to listen just to my voice all the way through the episode. Now, look, to give him his due... Louis knew he'd landed a gem, not just in terms of her vast tracts of land, but her personality. Eleanor was well-educated, accomplished in the arts, she was intelligent, forceful, and Louis loved her. John of Salisbury would write that he loved the Queen 
almost beyond reason, with an affection that was almost puerile. Eleanor would discover, quite quickly actually, that he wasn't what she was looking for. But at this point, remember, she's 14. The age people got married back then is quite extraordinary. But she had an inkling quite early that things would be different. The court at Paris was not like the court at Poitiers. The shtick was much more churchy, ascetic, pious, much less of that romantic troubadour thing going down. And Louis was surrounded by advisers that could be described as a little judgy, let's say. I mean, also, some of the fathers of Western civilization. We're talking about a man called Bernard of Clairvaux here, who founded one of the great religious movements of the epoch. But he could be a little judgy. Eleanor wanted and expected a say in affairs. She expected to cut a dash and do her bit to make the court at Paris shine as a centre of culture. And in her dress and the magnificence of her household, she did just that. As she did, she attracted fierce criticism from the lights of Bernard of Clairvaux, who famously declared, Buy on your beauty that is put on in the morning and laid aside at night. Chalk and cheese. Not that Eleanor was not pious, you understand, she was deeply, but conventionally so. She was a queen. She expected to behave and be treated accordingly, not like a monk or a nun. For eight years, the marriage bumbled along, not an ideal match from Eleanor's point of view, but what she was born to and her lot in life to which she expected to become resigned. In 1145, when Eleanor was 21, their first child was born. It was a girl. That same year, dramatic news came from the Crusader states. They were under threat. And as a secular leader of Christendom, Louis set out to lead a crusade to restore their security. And to everyone's surprise, Eleanor and her household were to go with them. It is very likely that Louis' advisers, Abbot Suger and Bernard of Clairvaux, fought against Eleanor's inclusion. After all, this was holy work. This was war. But Eleanor would not be denied this was an event of utmost importance, and as Queen of Christendom, effectively, she must set an example. And her uncle Raymond was Lord of Antioch. She must be part of this, do her duty, and by sheer force of character, she won the argument and carried the day. Well, the story of the Second Crusade is well worth telling, and you can hear it in the members' full series. But here, to cut a long story short, the Crusade was a disaster, a disaster militarily. Louis' forces were cut to pieces in Anatolia, and the remainder destroyed in a dreadfully planned and executed attack on Damascus. The Crusade also, though, was a bit of a disaster in the marriage of Eleanor and Louis. There are a couple of reasons for this. Now, for a while, they were based at the Crusader city of Antioch, which, as I say, was ruled by Eleanor's uncle, Raymond. There was a major disagreement between Raymond and Louis about what to do militarily, and Eleanor seems to have got herself deeply involved in the discussions. Now, it was a traditional role for a wife and queen to intercede with her husband. Petitioners frequently approached the queen to gain her advocacy. And so it was now in Antioch. But the manner of her intervention seems to have raised suspicions. She and Raymond spoke frequently, more than was thought reasonable. It's very likely also that they spoke in the long dock, which Louis probably couldn't understand, and again raised suspicions about what exactly were they talking about, what attitude was Eleanor taking. 
Furthermore, in dress and behaviour once more, Eleanor expected to play her part in representing the magnificence and status of the French court, and this, combined with her political forwardness, gave rise to rumours that Eleanor was having an affair with her uncle, which is absurd, that Eleanor had an affair with the Count of Anjou, Geoffrey Lebel, also there on crusade, which is almost equally unlikely, little less unlikely. Eleanor's commitment to the marriage was seriously damaged by Louis's disastrous indecisiveness, his suspicion and anger at her attempt to help politically, and the credence he gave to the scurrilous rumours about her. In addition, his behaviour was increasingly ascetic and pious. He'd even had his head shaved with a tonsure. It is said that Eleanor complained, I thought I'd wed a king and found I'd married a monk. We know that the marriage was in trouble because on the way home they visited Pope Eugenius in Italy at the city of Tusculum. One of the topics of discussion appears to have been their marriage. Eleanor was now actively chasing an annulment, for which, of course, they would need papal approval. Her grounds for this annulment was their kinship. She pointed out that she and Louis were related in the fourth and fifth degrees. The rules were that marriages were forbidden with ancestors seven generations back. Now, for most of the medieval nobility, this was, of course, pretty much impossible to achieve, and so usually it was either ignored or a special dispensation sought from the Pope. But in situations like this, it could be handy. In fact, there is something called the Capetian miracle, which is that miraculously they managed an unbroken line of kings of France from 987 and Hugh Capet to 1792 and a little local difficulty. This was, in fact, no miracle. The secret to their success was that if a queen did not deliver the goods, the marriage was annulled, the queen put aside and a new one deployed. Eat your heart out, Henry VIII. What an amateur. But Eugenius packed Louis. He gently gave Eleanor to understand that an annulment was not going to happen here. He gave the two of them some marriage guidance and offered them a highly decorated bed for the night to get the show back on the road. So, for the moment, Eleanor and Louis remained together, and the following year, 1150, a second child was born, Alice. But Eleanor almost certainly still wanted out. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On paper, Eleanor's desire to end this marriage looked absurdly impossible. From a personal angle, it seems Louis remained fascinated with his wife, from a political point of view, it seemed inconceivable that Louis would agree to a separation. It would mean the loss of the whole of Aquitaine to the French crown. But there were other considerations going on here. Louis wanted, and needed, a male heir. While in England there was no legal impediment to a woman becoming head of state, though custom almost always prevented it, in France there was an absolute law. The Salian Law Code compiled in 500 AD by King Clovis. So, 
Louis was desperate for a son and heir. And after two girls, he was worried that God had cursed this marriage and that he could never have a son by Eleanor. But it was complicated. So, listen up, and here we go. Louis faced three choices. And make no mistake, it was Louis's choice. That's the way it worked. First of all, the golden scenario, he and Eleanor had a son. They stayed married. Aquitaine would belong to the French crown for eternity and generally vive la France. If so, the very idea of Eleanor achieving a separation would be gone once a son was born. But there was another further wrinkle here. Clearly, Eleanor and Louis' relationship was on the rocks. So, it was not just whether Eleanor could give birth to a son, but whether she could conceive at all. Medieval medical law, then, followed Greek science in teaching that women could only become pregnant if they experienced pleasure during sex. So, if their marriage was on the rocks, and that was no longer happening, there would be no child of any type. Well, we just don't know about that, of course. There was no tabloid press back then to find out. Alternatively, they could end the marriage. But in the medieval world, one did not simply walk into a divorce, so there were two approaches to that strategy. He could play hardball. He could have her accused of adultery and set aside. The rules of society anyway meant that Louis could have as many affairs as he wanted. Eleanor would be confined to a half-life somewhere. That held some advantages to Louis. It would mean Aquitaine stayed with the crown, but it had a major drawback. Louis would be unable to remarry, so no male heir still and all the dangers that accompanied a disputed succession. Or he could appeal for an annulment based on being too closely related and Eleanor herself had suggested this. But they knew the Pope didn't like granting such a thing and anyway, it brought with it the danger that Eleanor would then remarry, Aquitaine would be lost to France forever. And actually there was another option. For a queen, adultery was a capital offence because you could be messing up the succession. So, if Louis really wanted to get nasty, he could have her condemned and executed for adultery and then sequester her lands. But Eleanor's Aquitanian vessels would almost certainly not wear that. They would almost certainly revolt. France lacked the resources to suppress them and meanwhile Louis's reputation would suffer horribly. His name would be mud for carrying out such a cruel and unfair decision and he prided himself on his reputation for goodness and piety. So poor old Louis was in agony. He was naturally indecisive and would maybe never jump on his own. He would need to be pushed. In 1151, his long-standing chief advisor, Abbot Suger, died. The abbot had worked tirelessly to keep the marriage together, but that left Bernard of Clairvaux with a much more censorious view of Eleanor's public reputation and behaviour, so the pressure on Louis mounted a little more. Eleanor's not totally helpless in this. In addition to making her wishes clear, which it seems she had already done, she could up the pressure. Her behaviour was already being seen as scandalous in some quarters, so if she gave the tum-waggers more material to wag with, the pressure on Louis to do something and rescue his reputation would grow and grow and maybe be enough to force him into a decision. To commentators anyway, it seemed clear that Eleanor was pushing the agenda. William of Newborough would write that it was Eleanor who contrived a righteous annulment. But the risks for Eleanor were enormous. 
Capital, basically, in the worst case, head-rolling time. All the cards were in Louis's hands. It could go either way. And it was in this context that Eleanor was to meet the Count of Anjou and his son when they came to the French court. The Count of Anjou was one of those super-fractious and independent-minded feudal lords that surrounded Louis, owing homage, but not really. In 1151, the 39-year-old Count Geoffrey of Anjou was in possession not just of Anjou, but also Normandy, and was fixing to get hold of England too. His wife was the Empress Matilda, son of the dead King of England, Henry I, and his son was Henry of Anjou, pretender to the Crown of England, Henry Plantagenet, that is. This is the time of the anarchy, when an English chronicler wrote in despair that Christ and his saints slept. As the Angevins, supporters of Anjou, fought with the usurper King Stephen, Stephen of Blois, civil war tore England apart. Anjou was a threat to Louis, an over-mighty subject on his doorstep. For that reason, Louis had supported Stephen of Blois and his party in the struggle for England. Anjou's troubles and hard work kept the French king safe from him. Count Geoffrey V of Anjou was a man full of energy and, frankly, full of beauty. He was tall, handsome, red-haired, larger than life, full of expansive bonhomie and self-confidence. So impressive was he that he was called Geoffrey Le Bel. We have met him before, and the suspicion attached to his and Eleanor's name in Antioch of an affair. Geoffrey was also a born warrior, the kind of man for whom life was fun and adventure, who spent very little time worrying about his pension scheme or searching for the best annuity. This time, though, Geoffrey came to make a deal with the French king, to buy Louis' support in return for giving him a critical parcel of land in Normandy, called the Vexin. Ever since 1066, the possession of the Vexin had been most vexing. Arf, and indeed, arf. So, it was a most tempting offer. Geoffrey also brought with him a son, as I say, his 18-year-old lad Henry, maybe less beautiful than his dad, described as middle height, reddish, freckled complexion with a large round head, grey eyes which glowed fiercely and grew bloodshot in anger, a fiery countenance and a harsh, cracked voice. But something of a draw. His countenance was one upon which a man might gaze a thousand times, yet still feel drawn to return to gaze on again. So he obviously had something, the lad. Eleanor and Henry's meeting attracted the attention of a couple of very gossipy chroniclers. Gerald of Wales, who these days would frankly be in the libel court night and day, and particularly one Walter Mapp, who would become a very world-weary member of Henry II's court. Walter and Gerald believed that Eleanor had shared Louis's bed with Geoffrey Lebel. I don't think they meant Louis was in it at the time, by the way. They now claimed that there were sparks when Henry and Eleanor met. Eleanor was 11 years his senior, 29 years old, and according to Walter, Henry looked at her with lust in his eyes, and in return, Eleanor cast unchaste eyes right back at Henry. Breathlessly, Gerald picks up the story. It's related that Henry presumed to sleep adulterously with the Queen of France. Walter claimed this was against Geoffrey's express wishes, that he actually warned Henry off on the basis that he'd already had an affair with Eleanor. 
In the complicated sexual rules of the medieval world, this would then mean that if his son had sex with Eleanor, he'd be committing incest. It's a tangled web. Now, all of this, frankly, has little more status than tattle-tittle or even tittle-tattle. It's highly unlikely that Eleanor and Henry got it on in the glare of publicity at the court in Paris, but it is unimpossible that it was in Eleanor's interest to set tongues wagging with maybe a bit of flirting. Such a thing would only build the pressure on Louis to give in to an annulment. The collusion could have been more practical and extensive than that, though. Eleanor was no fool, and she would have had suspected that if she did achieve an annulment, she would then need a protector from the predators that would gather for her hand. Of which more in a moment. Well, whether or not Eleanor did indeed plot with Henry, her campaign to win her freedom came to a successful conclusion at last. Louis finally capitulated. Observers claimed that Louis was inflamed by a spirit of jealousy, with advisers bending his ear, telling that Eleanor's behaviour was bringing on public ridicule. It could have been this. Or it could simply have been, more practically, that Louis was desperate for a son. And his feeling was that he could not have one now with Eleanor, for whatever reason. Either way, in March 1152, Louis called a council of French prelates and nobles at Beaugency to consider an annulment on the grounds of consanguinity, he did not include any suggestion of adultery. Indeed, one bishop did actually raise the question of whether the grounds should be adultery and may have been put up to that by Bernard of Clairvaux. But the idea was quickly dropped, was not the king's wish. Now the outcome of the meeting was probably a foregone conclusion once Louis was on board. As a result, the marriage was declared annulled. Eleanor's lands would be returned to her, but her daughters would stay with their father, though without any rights of inheritance. It was done. Eleanor had what she wanted. Once more, she was the independent ruler of the ancient Duchy of Aquitaine and could look forward to a life of freedom, power and culture in her glittering court at Poitiers. It is highly likely that the realities of medieval life meant that Eleanor knew well that that was a long shot. Maybe if she had been a merchant's widow, she could have declared her legal status to be femme sole rather than femme couverte, and with comparative freedom, run her own business and fight off the proposals of marriage from the ambitious. But not for Eleanor, really, in her position. The truth is that, in March 1152, cut off from the protection of marriage to Louis now, she was frighteningly vulnerable. At some point, she would probably need a protector. But look, hopefully, there'd be time for that. Now, Jerry Rafferty tells us that from city to city is 400 miles, but I am guessing he is thinking of Glasgow to London, not Beaugency de Poitiers, which is about 120 miles, give or take. After judgment had been given in the case, Eleanor's entourage gathered to take her home to travel the 22 miles towards Blois, where she could expect a warm and comfortable night in the city, before travelling in as much comfort as an unsprung medieval cart could provide to her home city of Poitiers. But as they gathered, one of Eleanor's household gentlemen or gentlewomen slipped into her pavilion. We don't know who this person was. All we know is that Eleanor described them as her good angel. The good angel came with news. It came with news about Tybald. Now, Tybald was heir to the county of Blois and an ambitious 22-year-old. He'd already seen his big brother get the choice county of Champagne, which was really annoying. 
marriage to Eleanor, though, now that could transform his future. And Tybalt was going to seize his opportunity, come hell or come high water. And he was waiting now, outside Blois, in the woods with his knight and horse. As Eleanor's entourage passed in the night, they would leap out, overwhelm her escort with hard steel, and take her to Blois, and the future Duke of Aquitaine would be duly announced. Desperate last-minute hurrying and scurrying, the road was obviously impossible now, filled with danger, but there was another way. As much of Eleanor's belongings as possible were hauled off in carts over to a barge sitting at the wharfs on the River Loire. Down the river they went to arrive at the cathedral city of Tours, from where they hired more carts and set off on the remaining hundred miles to cross the River Vienne at Port des Piles, and thence to Poitiers and safety. Thibault was left outside Blois in his woods, cursing and empty-handed. But all was not yet done. There was another adventurer who knew full well that Eleanor's logical route would take her through Port des Piles to cross the River Vienne. Geoffrey of Nantes was the man, 18, and the second son of Geoffrey le Bel, Count of Anjou, younger brother of Henry Plantagenet, therefore prospective King of England. He was therefore one of the devil's brood, and he intended to earn the title. The prospects of a second son were never that great, always destined to play second fiddle to the older brother. Such a role would actually eat at Geoffrey all his life. His ambition and treachery would always be a rich source of intrigue for the kings of France. But it could all be different. He planned to take his chance as Eleanor's entourage passed across the bridge, and again, a new Duke of Aquitaine would be inaugurated in a few short days once he'd captured her. No doubt he planned and dreamed and celebrated as he waited with his men-at-arms at the bridge and visualised the glory of his future court. Until at some point he began to wonder where on earth Eleanor had got to, what on earth was keeping her. Eventually, maybe, he sent some riders across the bridge and up the road towards Tours to seek out this party, to find out where it was, only to find there was nothing moving on the road. It was the good angel again, and it would be lovely to know who they were and whether they'd been set to their task by Eleanor as a spy who must have suspected there might be such ambitious types out there, given the extravagant richness of the prize. So once more she was warned. Once more she found another route, maybe taking a road further west and cro- crossing the River Vienne at Sauvage. And by the time Geoffrey realised what had happened, it was too late. Eleanor had slipped his noose and was safely in her homeland of Poitou and on her way to Poitiers. Had Eleanor entertained in the back of her mind that she could live her life as an independent Duchess of Aquitaine, her journey home convinced her that she needed a protector and she needed a protector fast. Frankly, she probably needed a protector from her own nobles as well, as she were no better behaved than anyone else. The Lusignan family, for example, have the most extraordinary history, including a disastrous king of Jerusalem who saw his army slaughtered at Hattin by Saladin. So she took the only option open to her, possibly an option already planned. Messengers left Poitiers before Easter Sunday, the 30th of March, 1152. Now, for a few short weeks then, Eleanor was able to live the dream, the dream of an independent, all-powerful Duchess of Aquitaine. 
She took quick and decisive control, calling her barons to her, announcing the annulment to them, and publicly cancelling all acts, grants and privileges made by Louis while he had been duke, and then issuing anew the grants that she wanted to make of her own account, made now in her name. Six weeks later, on the 18th of May, 1152, Eleanor stood next to the husband of her choice, whom the messengers had brought to her side. They were in the 11th century cathedral of Saint-Pierre in Poitiers. Her choice had arrived to claim his prize. He was middling height, with a reddish, freckled complexion and a surprisingly large round head, grey eyes and a certain energy and charisma. It was, of course, Henry Plantagenet. It was a decision that Eleanor would live to enjoy to the full and eventually maybe live to regret. It certainly wouldn't deliver her a quiet life, but then I doubt that was what she wanted, and it would allow her also at some point in the future to hold court again in her beloved Poitiers as ruler. Eleanor's determination to be free of Louis created the vast Angevin Empire and to more than 300 years of conflict between France and England. People would look back and wonder at the force of character that pushed Louis into such a momentous decision. The minstrel of Reims of the next century was to comment, Far better had it served him to have immured the queen for adultery, for then had her vast lands remained to him. The rest, as they say, is history, and if you'd like to know more about that history, please sign up to be a member of the History of England podcast site at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Please go to the Become a Member choice on the menu bar when you get there, and then you can see the extent of the library that will become available to you. It's 40 quid for a year or 4 quid for a month. gives you access to over 100 hours of shedcasts, including a history of Scotland, Anglo-Saxon life, British politics, and loads of loads more. And I do up to 90 minutes a month of new stuff. Plus, you'd be supporting me to keep going on the history of England. Any currency is accepted, of course, when you go through the process. Thank you for your attention, everyone. And thank you for not throwing things at the podcatcher when you heard that it was a promotional episode. Unless you did, of course, in which case, ouch. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>